The resurrection of Jesus has massive implications concerning our past, our present, and our future. Because for the child of God, Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection. That means there is healing for the past, there is comfort for today, and there is hope for tomorrow. This content comes from Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. All right, some of you may be familiar with the story of the man who picked up what was apparently just a generic copy of the Declaration of Independence in a $4 frame at either a yard sale or, a, or like a estate sale. Maybe it was a flea market, I'm not sure. But it turns out it was one of the original copies of the Declaration of Independence. And they sold it at auction several years later for $2.42 million. It's pretty steep profit. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but just take $4 away from $2.42 million and you'll have his profit margin on that one. So that's incredible. But there's, and it's good news for that guy, but there's two sides to the story. There's the guy who sat with that. It was actually in his garage for years. He had kind of like a man cave in the garage and he had that hanging there. And one day during spring cleaning, uh, his wife and him decided it was time to get rid of that, so they just took it down to the local thrift shop. You see, he had something worth $2.42 million sitting in front of his face every time he was in his garage, but all he saw was something worth $4. He didn't see it for, for what it is. A funnier example of this, of people not seeing what's in front of them, is Tony Hawk. You guys know Tony Hawk, anybody? <laughs> Remember the guy, the skateboarder? Yeah, that's right. So Tony Hawk is hilarious on Twitter. What Tony Hawk likes to do is tweet about all the times that he meets people that they don't know who he is. They have no idea that it's Tony Hawk. So just for kicks and giggles, we'll share a few of them. He says this one, he's at a restaurant, and the guy says, you're famous, question mark. He says, I think that depends on who you ask. The guy responds, anyone ever tell you you look like Tom Brady? If you, know Tom, if you know Tony Hawk, you know how funny that is. If you know what Tony Hawk and, and Tom Brady look like, that's, it's even funnier. He says, never. So that was a first. Uh, TSA agent checking my idea, uh, ID. Hawk, like that skateboarder Tony Hawk? He says, exactly. He says, cool. Or she says, cool, I wonder what he's up to these days. And he says, this. <laughs> A uh, guy at the grocery store, you ever been mistaken for Tony Hawk, or are you Tony Hawk? And he says both. <laughs> this is the story of his life. There's, there are uh, hundreds of these that he shares on his Twitter account. It's a great follow. One final one, flight attendant checking overhead bins, sees four skateboards, him, jokingly. Is Tony Hawk on this flight or something? And he looks down and sees Tony Hawk, and he says, I guess he is. <laughs> And then he does four skateboard emojis. I think that's a nice touch there as well. So the point is that sometimes things can be right in front of our face and we don't see them for what they are. Sometimes things are um, seemingly too good to be true or they seem like they can't possibly be real or for whatever reason we see them in front of us and we, and we don't see them for what they are. We're spending the next four weeks looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are going to look at its implications for our past, 
for our present and for our future. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. But today, we're going to look at the reality of resurrection. And what we're going to see is that we're going to see two people in particular who saw Jesus right in front of their faces and did not recognize the risen Jesus for who he was. But what we'll also see is that we reflect them in a lot of ways. We may believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, but we don't necessarily take ownership of all the implications that the resurrection has for our lives. And what I want us to to see today, though, the good news is that the reality of the resurrection is not dependent on your faith, but on Jesus' faithfulness. So when we doubt, and sometimes in life the, the truest things are the things that seem too good to be true, uh, certainly in, in, in the Bible, biblically speaking, the greatest truths of the kingdom of God are oftentimes the things that seem too good to be true. But the likelihood or probability of any of the truths of Scripture, the likelihood or, or probability of the resurrection doesn't determine its, its reality. The acceptance of our culture, of the truths of the Bible, Or the resurrection does not determine the reality. And not even our seasons of doubt. Our seasons of disbelief in the promises of God. Or even in the resurrection. Can even possibly begin to determine their reality. The reality of the resurrection is not dependent on your faith. It's not dependent on your belief. It's dependent on Jesus' faithfulness. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 24. Verses 13 and 14 will set the scene. We've actually got a lot of verses to cover today, but it's narrative, so it'll, it'll move along for us. But this is a story. In verses 13 and 14, they set the, the scene. That very day... Two of them, two of them meaning two of the followers of Jesus, because there's just been a narrative that we'll come back to in the first 12 verses of this passage that is alluding to the followers of Jesus having experienced something. Two of them uh, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, first of all, who are these people? We get that they're followers of Jesus. We're going to learn one of their names here in just a minute. His name is Cleopas. Uh, There's a Cleopas in John chapter 19. That Cleopas is married to a woman named uh, Mary. Married to Mary. That works out. So uh, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible too. So uh, he probably, once he got real involved in the, the, the community of followers of Jesus, he'd probably just say, hey, Mary, and you're going to get the name right. Um, that's helpful. But there uh, they are. Whether it's, his, whether it's Cleopas from John 19, we don't know. If it is, it's likely his wife that's with him, but we don't know that for sure. Maybe two friends, we're not sure. But they're followers of Jesus, and as they go, they talk about all that has happened. It's been a really busy weekend for the followers of Jesus. It's been a wild weekend for the followers of, of Jesus. And as we'll find out, there's been some pretty exciting rumors, but there's only one thing so far that's been proven to be reality, and that was the death of Jesus. 
The resurrection is still a rumor. The resurrection is still a, a tale that is spreading. Not a whole lot of people have seen Jesus yet. And so for these two followers, the only thing that they know for sure is that Jesus, the one that they've been following, the one who they expected to bring uh, redemption to Israel, as we'll see, is dead. And so as they go, they talk about these things, but they're not just talking about his death, they're talking about these rumors of his resurrection. And there they are, walking. They don't believe yet in the reality of resurrection. We'll see that revealed to us right now. Verses 15 through 24, verses 13 and 14 set the scene for this passage today. Verses 15 through 24 reveal to us uh, a truth that they believe is too good to be true. They look at these rumors. They look even at this man that's about to join them on their journey. And, and it all seems too good to be true. Last week we talked about how there were folks, even at the ascension of Jesus, who were worshiping and there were others who were doubting. But we also saw that Jesus turns doubters into worshipers. And he's about to do that again right here. And he's done it for us as well, we talked about last week. All of us have had our doubts. All of us have had times of disbelief. But Jesus in his grace turns doubters into worshipers. And here these two walk in their doubts, in their disbelief. And while they were talking and discussing together, starting in verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, if you uh, look at maybe people who have studied this in depth, there's two kind of understandings of that. Either they actually supernaturally had their ability to recognize Jesus taken away. They're not blinded like they can't see where they're going, but they're blinded to the fact that this is, is Jesus. Or it's their doubts that are blinding them. I think about it this way. Imagine if my dad passed away. And we had the funeral, and we wept, and we mourned, and we put him in the ground. And then three weeks later, say I'm at Oscar's Burgers, and I see a man across the restaurant that looks like my dad. Now, if you've been in a situation like this, you may have felt the sting of at first thinking, there's my dad, but then your intellectual understanding immediately follows up. That can't possibly be him. It doesn't matter how much he looks like your dad. It can't possibly be him. You just bury him. So if you want to give these folks a hard time for looking right in the face of Jesus, not believing that it was him, or not recognizing that it was him, think about the power of doubt. Think about it. Resurrection was not in their vocabulary. Not in some real, deep, meaningful way. Not the same way we talk about it. So they didn't recognize that it was him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. As you'll see, they're a little bit taken back that he doesn't understand. But before we get to that part, recognize their sadness. There are people in our lives, and we may be the ones right now who are struggling with doubt or disbelief about any number of things. And, and there's sadness that comes with that. And so we're going to see Jesus patiently and lovingly enter into their doubt. Not scolding, not angry, not frustrated. 
And so when you are with brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with doubt, struggling with disbelief, don't miss the pain that comes with it. Don't move past the emotional pain straight to the intellectual truth. They need both. We must be willing to speak truth into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how difficult it may be, even when they're hurting and when they're sad. But the way that you'll do that with love is if you're able to enter into their sadness with them. And so Jesus is there entering into them in their pain. And the pain is from the fact that it's just too good to be true. We have seen this in the immediate context of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, and we'll learn who these ladies are at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Okay? This is a little spoiler alert if you're not sure how Easter works out. Um, I was thinking about saving it for next week. But the stone was rolled away and, and uh, from the tomb, and when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, these ladies, and bowed their faces to the ground, the, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? There's a little bit of sarcasm there, right? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, they could have answered back just as honestly if they weren't so shell-shocked by the appearance of these angels. Well, we're seeking the dead among the dead. We're here to seek the dead among the dead. But the angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They'd forgotten his words. But now they remember. He said this would happen. They remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Likely Cleopas and, and if it's his wife or whoever his, his friend or companion is, they are there for this announcement. Now it was Mary Magdalene and, and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, the mother of Jesus, and the other woman uh, uh, with them, the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But get this, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. It seemed too good to be true. It seemed impossible, hard to believe, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping, looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Here's the point. That's the immediate context of where we're at. And Cleopas and his companion were likely among those who heard the testimony, but thought of it as too good to be true. They didn't believe it. It was too impossible. And now Jesus is right in front of them, and because it's too good to be true, they can't even recognize him for who he is. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened uh, there in these days? <laughs> He's like, Where have you been? Do you not watch the news? Are you not on social media? Do you not see all the, did you see it, not see it twindi, uh, trending on Twitter? That the Messiah has been crucified. The one who claimed to be the Messiah is dead. But get this, he's saying that to the risen Messiah. 
He is telling the risen Messiah that the risen Messiah doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem and the only person who fully knows all the implications of what just happened in Jerusalem is the one he's talking to. Cleopas is lecturing the risen Messiah for his lack of knowledge, but Cleopas is the one who has the lack of knowledge. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't scold him. Jesus enters into his doubt conversationally. If you've been here for a few months, we talked about how God did that for a man named Elijah. He's done that for countless of his followers in the midst of their doubt, in the midst of their disbelief. Even audacious disbelief like Cleopas that can look the risen Messiah in the face and say, do you really not have a clue? Even doubt that strong Jesus enters into it graciously, kindly, inviting conversation, and he says to them, what things? Cleopas responds, or both of them talk together. They said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You ever heard of him? A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Those are the facts. That's the the news report by the facts. But next he moves into why this has made them so sad. He goes from facts to the emotions, the feelings, the response that they are having or the reason behind it. But we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. He says, we thought that he was going to bring us out from under the Roman thumb. We thought he was going to establish a new kingdom now, David's throne now. And now he's dead. And it's been three days and he's still dead. Or is he, right? They still think he is, though. They say more, but they give the testimony. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, we just read this, they came back saying that they had uh, even seen a vision of angels. Notice what's happening, by the way. They are explaining away already what has happened. The women did not tell of visions of angels. They talked about seeing actual angels. But because it's too good to be true and too painful to engage this potential thing that they know is just going to let them down, just like Jesus' uh, death had let them down. They're already explaining it away. They even said they saw visions of angels and said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, Peter was one of them, and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. The gospel according to Cleopas ends with those words, him they did not see. There's a rumor, but it's too good to be true. I ain't seen him. Peter didn't see him. These other folks saw visions of angels, but it's too good to be true. The reality of the resurrection is an impossible reality. It's supernatural, and so it requires supernatural faith to believe it. And they don't have that faith yet. They have poor vision. They had finite expectations. They wanted a kingdom now. 
Not an eternal kingdom, a kingdom now. That was their expectations and their hopes have been dashed and there's tales of resurrection, but how could it possibly be? But, but they're missing it. They're missing the promises of God. And I do too. Psalm 16.10, speaking of Jesus, a messianic prophecy, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It was impossible for Jesus' body to rot in the tomb. It couldn't happen. The promise was the opposite. No corruption for his body. He would not be abandoned in the grave, left alone in the tomb. That was the promise. Isaiah 53, famous prophecy about the death of Christ. It also prophesies that he will live beyond death. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering to guilt, for guilt, when Jesus dies on behalf of the sins of you and me and makes that offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Okay, so when Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for uh, those who believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ to become children of God, his offspring. The promise of Isaiah 53 is that Jesus will see his offspring. Dead people don't see their grandkids and great-great-grandkids and great-great-great-great-grandkids. They're done seeing. But the promise of Isaiah 53 is that Jesus would see beyond the grave, which means he would live beyond the grave. Daniel 12, 2-3. And many of those who sleep, this is just resurrection in general, that the, that the dead will live again, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness uh, like the stars forever and ever. The Old Testament is filled with promises that Jesus would both die, be buried, and live beyond the grave. And they missed it. They didn't just miss it from the Old Testament, they missed it from Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Same almost exact words in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 as well. They didn't see it. The promise was there. The promise had always been there. And they missed it. Be honest, I'd have missed it too. If you're honest, you'd have missed it too. It was too good to be true. This week and over the next three weeks, we're going to be reminded of the implications of the resurrection upon our past, our present, and our future. And what we'll see in that is a lot worth rejoicing about. But what we'll also see is that those implications, we don't always believe them. We don't always live as if they're true. Myself included. We doubt too. But good news, Jesus turns doubters into worshipers. Jesus won't let us miss the reality of resurrection, verses 25 through 45. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Now, it comes out a lot harsher to us now. But it's almost, he's coming back to Cleopas just a little bit, saying, you've missed it. 
not like you fool, right? That, that's, that's actually a, kind of a poor translation for us today. It would be better to read, you've missed it. I don't know his tone of voice when he said it, but he says to them, you've missed it. You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then watch what he does. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus begins to preach a sermon to these two there on the road to Emmaus. Philip Ryken shares my exact thoughts. What any preacher would give to hear that sermon when the Word of God incarnate explained the Word of God written. Can you imagine? He exegetes the Old Testament scriptures. He takes all the meaning out of the Old Testament scripture. They're, they're walking seven miles, by the way, so you think this sermon's going long. This one was longer. He takes the Old Testament... And he shows them, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. And what has just happened was always what was promised to happen. He goes through it piece by piece by piece. It's not only the resurrection that we see in the Old Testament, we see Jesus everywhere. In the same chapter, verse 24, he's going to say, to his disciples just a few verses later, uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you before I died, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed uh, in his name to all the nations. Okay, Here's the point Jesus is making. And by the way, he's, he's tutoring his followers, by the way. Because they're going to preach for the rest of the New Testament. And they're only going to cite Scripture from one place because it hasn't been written. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. They're going to cite Scripture from the Old Testament time and time and time again. One of the things that's oftentimes lost especially in evangelical churches of today, is that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And when you understand that, when you realize that, it comes alive in ways that it never did, did before. Nancy uh, Guthrie, who's a brilliant, brilliant woman, she talks about how some of the ways we can look for Jesus in, in the Old Testament. We don't have time to really flesh all this out, but I just I want to nudge you in this truth, because Jesus is doing this on the road to Emmaus. And there's something to be learned here. She says, when you see a problem that only Christ can solve, the curse, our inability to keep the law, our alienation from God, we should look for Jesus, because only he can solve it. A promise only Christ can fulfill, blessing, presence of God with us. A need that only Christ can meet, salvation from judgment, life beyond death. A pattern or theme that can only come to resolution in Christ, kingdom and rest. And we, could, we could spend hours here. A story that only comes to its conclusion through Christ, the narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, can only come through Christ. A person who prefigures an aspect of who Christ will be or what he will do by analogy or contrast. 
Joseph, Moses, David, an event or a symbol or an aspect of who Christ will be or what he will be. I wish I could explain all this to you. We don't have time. Uh, If you want to have a conversation about it, we can. He's everywhere. There's revelations of the pre-incarnate Christ wrestling with Jacob, commander of the Lord's army, time and time and time and time again. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes up out of the, the grave, rather than pointing to his resurrection body first of all, Jesus pointed to the scriptures that pointed to himself. You see, Jesus was the only one who even was going to have the ability to use the evangelism technique of saying, here I am, look at me, the resurrection's true. See the nail scars in my hands and the the spear mark in my side, the the gospel's true. He's the only one that could use that evangelism technique. The rest of us have to use this book. That's how the gospel was going to have to be spread throughout the world was with this book. And so he tutors his disciples there on the road to Emmaus. He tutors his disciples in the upper room. He says, you can't point to me alive physically. You have to show people me in the word of God. And that's what he does. I love this quote by Dinsdale Young. I should have imagined that the risen Lord would have been independent from the Bible. But no, he cleaves to it with an old affection. He came up from the grave and hastened to the holy book. So the reality of resurrection was promised, but now we see that the the reality of resurrection was present. It wasn't just promised, it was now present. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. He wasn't pretending, he's like faking like he's going to go further. He just has the behavior, because he is that he's going to go further. And so they have a little Appalachian goodbye here. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. It's in reverse. The Appalachian goodbye starts in the living room and moves into the kitchen and then the lobby and then the driveway. or the You know, that's how it goes. They go in reverse. They go from the driveway in, uh, to the entryway and, and on into the kitchen. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. That God would do that for us time and time again. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and and he instantaneously vanished from their sight. See, that Appalachian goodbye had ate up a little too much of his time so so he had to go on warp speed instead of (laughs) normal speed. And he vanishes. That resurrection body stuff. Their eyes were opened. You are Tony Hawk, right? But infinitely better than that. They saw him. This is a case in point example of, of what the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says that, that for those who do not believe the cross and the resurrection is foolishness. But for those who believe It's the very power of God. Their eyes have been opened to the fact that it is the very power of God. They now are beginning to see what God's plan was the whole time. He didn't come to free them from Caesar. He came to free them from sin. He didn't come to to sit on David's earthly throne. He came to establish David's eternal throne. By the way, you know when you're looking at the real Jesus because he doesn't look anything like you would expect him to look. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He didn't come to be loved, although that will be the result. He came 
to love. He didn't come to condemn, but to redeem. He didn't come to throw punches, but to take punches. He didn't come to make us comfortable, but he came to ensure that we could be comforted. He didn't come to infiltrate politics. He came to demolish religiosity. He didn't come to lord it over us, but to humble himself. He didn't come to destroy Rome and redeem Israel in that way. He came to destroy death itself. And they're beginning to see that now. They see the resurrection as a promised reality because he's opened scripture to them. And now they're seeing it as a present reality. And here's where we close. Their response. If the resurrection is a reality, which it is, promised and present... By the way, we are still in living in an age where it is a present reality. It's no longer just a promised reality. It's a present reality. Jesus has been risen from the dead. What is the response? Theirs is, is twofold. You're going to see that there's an internal response where their hearts burn within them, and there's an external response where they proclaim the resurrection reality. Here's what they say to each other. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures. I don't know if your heart has ever burned within you. But I know many of you, and we've had conversations of those times where you feel alive to the promises of God. For some of you, it may be more emotional, like goosebumps and tears. For others, it may be an intellectual enlightenment, right? For some of you, it may happen in the stillness of the morning or when you're looking at a sunset. For others of you, when you're in the woods, maybe hunting or fishing. For some of you, it's, it's an intellectual study of the, the Word of God. For others of you, it might be in service of the needy or sitting across from a brother or sister in Christ, uh, uh, sharing coffee and talking about the Word of God. I don't know when that burning happens in your life. Maybe it's hearing a certain song, but, but you, I pray, as the children of God, have felt what it's like to have that burning within you, that desire to believe that the stories are true. They felt that, that burning within, within them. I don't know where you feel it, but I know what your flesh will tell you. The old flesh, because it tells me the same thing. Your flesh will tell you it's too good to be true. Your flesh will tell you don't believe the hype. And I might doubt the physical resurrection of Jesus, maybe. Or maybe you come to a place where you don't doubt the physical resurrection of Jesus, but you doubt your resurrection one day. God can't save me. It's too good to be true. That can't possibly be my future. And all of us, if we're honest, if we don't doubt the physical resurrection, we doubt the implications of the resurrection, that we're free from sin. That Jesus is worthy of worship more than our stuff is worthy of worship. That in Christ all things are being made new, so we don't have to be the fix-it agents. Jesus is, right? All the time I live my life as if the resurrection isn't true. And so we need that burning with, within us. That's the grace of God at work in us, saying the stories are true. The resurrection is real. The promises of God are something you can bank your very life on that burning within. So put yourself in those places is what I'm getting at. 
Whatever it is that you're doing that stirs up that burning within you to believe the promises of God, put yourself in those places, practice those disciplines, do those things. Make sure they're part of your regular living so that you can burn within. But it doesn't just stop, uh, it doesn't stop with an internal response. There's an external response as well. This is the last verse. And they rose that same hour. Right? Remember, it's almost nighttime, by the way, and they just hooked at seven miles. They don't care. Jesus is alive. Huh. Ain't no cost too big. It isn't a journey too long to thwart the desire inside of them to tell the world that Jesus was dead, but now he's alive. And so they go seven miles to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed. We'll say that next week. We'll say it next week because Cleopas and his wife or, or, or Cleopas and whoever was with him said it then. And it's become a long-standing church tradition and it doesn't have to be Easter Sunday to say it. So we'll practice now, right? A little crowd interaction. When I say he is risen, you come back. He is risen indeed. We've got to get ready for, for next week. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And y'all are ready. You're ready. That's so good. I thought I was going to have to do it twice. I didn't. He is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon and they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They proclaimed it. Now here we see him proclaim it to the saints. Later on, we'll see him proclaim it to the ain'ts. We need to do both. Jackie O'Perry is hilarious. I don't know if you know her. I don't know if you follow her on Instagram. She's so funny. She's a great teacher of the church right now, by the way. Incredible teacher of the church. But uh, I'm big C, like, like uh, through uh, the internet and things like that, through her books. But one thing she'll say, she'll say, uh, good morning or hello to all the saints and all the ain'ts. Those who are saints and those who ain't saints. Those who are in Jesus and those who aren't. They're proclaiming it to the believers, the followers of Jesus. That's important. We have to take that with us. We must always be reminding one another of the resurrection reality. We must be reminding ourselves of the resurrection reality for our past, present, and future, which we'll talk about over the next three weeks. But this must be a part of how we live. When doubt enters into the heart of your brother or your sister in Christ, you bring them resurrection reality. These promises of God are true because Jesus is risen. When a brother or sister in Christ buries a loved one who was in Christ in the pain, right, that comes with that. You, you enter into that pain with the promise of resurrection, which is a reality because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we struggle with sin... We proclaim the gospel to ourselves, reminding us ourselves that we are freed from the power of sin and we can go forth in victory. Not only is there forgiveness, but there is power to go forward and to walk again in, in faithfulness and, and righteousness. And we do the same for one another. So we proclaim the resurrection reality to each other, to the saints, and we proclaim it to the ain'ts. This will be the rest of the story of the New Testament. They'll be jailed for it. They'll be crucified upside down for it. They'll be boiled in hot oil for it. And they won't stop. They'll keep proclaiming. They'll go seven miles in the middle of the night. They'll stand before the Sanhedrin facing death. They'll be threatened with prison. 
And they'll say, we believe that we should follow God, not men. Because they're that bent on proclaiming the resurrection reality. Might it be so for us? That we would go forth and proclaim the resurrection reality to each other and to those who are not in Christ. And that's where I want to stop today, is I want to proclaim it today. If there's anyone in this room who's, who's not a Christian, the promise for the children of God is, is seen in Romans 8, 11. We'll actually be there next week. Next week. We'll talk about this verse again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The promise for the true children of God, the promise for Christians is that Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. His resurrection is our resurrection. But if you're not a Christian, that hope is not yet yours. So I would say today to you, please believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Saved from what? From your sin. The Bible is clear that our sin separates us from God eternally unless it's dealt with. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, washes away all of our sin. It makes it possible for our sinful record of wrong to be replaced by Jesus' record of righteousness. That can be your reality today through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe that what he did on the cross was enough. You don't have to do anything. He did it. Believe it. Today, you'll be saved. And that resurrection reality will be your reality. And children of God, we just flesh this out, so I don't have to spend any time there, but might we do two things. Fan the flames of belief and resurrection reality. That fire that burns within you, and, and here, I, I thought about this this week. Because I know some of you, I've been there, might be in a place where it doesn't feel like there's any flame at all. You're filled with doubt. You're filled with disbelief. And maybe it's been a long season. Last summer we were burning... There's a giant pile of leaves at the bottom of our hill. And I went out there with one of those kerosene torch things. And I lit it up and I kept walking around it. And that thing went up. All those dry leaves burned away. And at the, at the end of them burning away, there was all these wet, soggy, nasty, mildewy leaves there. And they wouldn't catch on fire. I had a flamethrower. They wouldn't catch on fire. So I gave up. Went inside. Maybe you feel like that right now. There's no flame here. It's, it's too wet. It's too saturated with doubt. Two and a half days later, I go down to, to kind of do some stuff around the fire pit, and nonchalantly I kick that pile of leaves. And when I do, all these embers shoot up out of it. The fire, unbeknownst to me, had tunneled in to the center of that leaf pile and was burning it up from the inside out. And what appeared dead, what appeared impossible to have any burning inside of it, was filled with embers that just needed stirred up. So even when you don't feel the burning, fan the flames of the burning. The disciplines of the Christian life might feel wasted right now in your life. They're not. There's a fire in there that God has given to you. And as you practice the disciplines of scripture reading and community and walking with Jesus, 
Fans will be flamed. Don't give up. I don't know when the, the leaves will move out of the way and the embers will shoot out. I can't make any promise to you, but I can promise you that the disciplines are not wasted. Keep fanning the flame. And lastly, let's proclaim it to ourselves. Let's proclaim it to the saints and let's proclaim it to the world. The reality of resurrection is not dependent on our faith. Remember that as you go. Remember that as you seek to stir the flames inside of yourself. It's relying on Jesus' faithfulness. So find your confidence in Jesus' work, not your own. Father, I can't do any justice to that. None of I can't. The Holy Spirit must work in our lives. I pray you will fan the flames this morning. That the reality of resurrection, which truly changes everything, will grip us today and this week and in the weeks to come in ways that are fresh and new and deep in our souls. That we will believe not just the, the physical resurrection, but the implications of the resurrection on our life. Freedom from sin. Power to overcome sin in the future. Future hope of life beyond the grave and on and on the list could go. Give us that burning within. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, we would love for you to join the work of God as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at our website at www.mercyvillage.church.